Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Is is stealing bad? I think stealing's medium. <laughs> See, that's that's yeah. the thing, right? Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here today with Jane Coaston and also a special guest, Meredith Haggerty. Um, she is the uh, deputy editor of The Goods, which is a exciting vertical at Vox.com that you have probably seen on our website. Dara is doing something, I forget what, going to the beach, I think, which is probably, probably more fun than podcasting. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, really glad to have her with us. Uh, Meredith and I have been talking on and off for a while um, about sort of looting and, and vandalism and its role in protest. And in our defense, we were talking about this before it became like an RNC hot button talking point. And so I always want to say we're not like just slaves to the news cycle here. It's simply that the 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 great wheel of the news cycle sometimes turns to to interesting subjects. And, you know, I don't know, there's sort of a, a, a lot to be said about this. Uh, but just before the show, I mean, I thought Jane was actually making an interesting point about sort of this discourse versus versus reality. So I think that my point here is, and I expect at some point to get a very something email about this, but I think that the people having this discourse, one of the challenges of being engaged in the discourse, et cetera, about events is that the people having the discourse, namely us, and the people, let's argue, who are committing looting and vandalism, let's argue, not us, are, again, not us about, not the people who are taking part in this discourse. And so I think that we've seen... um, Probably the the most talked about NPR interview in like 40 years uh, was for an author who wrote a book essentially in defense of looting, who made um, a lot of suppositions about the reasoning behind looting. And the arguments that she made uh, in that interview and in an interview with the New Yorker's Isaac Schottner, who is a person who, if he calls you, don't answer. Just don't do it. Don't pick up the phone. But basically seemed to argue that looting was an inherently political act and that the people doing it were taking part in a political action that was, one, 
a politicized act and two, a good one. And that w- one that was necessary and one that was a arguable good. And she made a lot of comments attempting to argue that, um, I, I won't get too far into this, but let me just say that I, I found her argument about how looting was like a queer femme activity as a queer femme person to be like a little, okay, let's, let's simmer that down a little bit. But again, it seemed to be that in so many cases, if you were to go out and ask people who are taking part in looting activities, uh, let's say um, in... Kenosha or in Minneapolis or any of the cities in which we've seen this taking place. And then you see the people later who are talking about that looting or in some cases, not necessarily defending that art, that looting, but in some t- times engaging in an interesting looting whataboutism, essentially saying like, well, the real looting was happening all along. Those are two entirely group, separate groups of people. And so I think it's worth saying that like the people who we are talking about committing these acts and the people who are defending these acts are two very different groups of people. And I think that that's worth getting out of the way first and foremost. Well, at least potentially, right? I mean, there's also... So a long time ago, uh, this is like 20 years ago because I'm old, I went to like anti-WTO protests. Oh, yeah, uh, with, the, with, the protests in 1999 that I remember and that immediate. I feel like because of 9-11, there's this weird period for like the four years beforehand that were lost to time. And I think about the WTO protests quite a bit because that was my first understanding that like, oh, the Pacific Northwest, things get wild out there. Yeah, so I, I, I was not in Seattle, uh, but there were, you know... Similar actions uh, in different cities across America. Um, if you don't know what I'm talking about at all, uh, there's a good uh, Against Me has a song called Baby, I'm an Anarchist mm-hmm. that captures this dynamic perfectly, which is that there were like a lot of people marching, you know, under the auspices of like Greenpeace and the Teamsters Union, you know, like p- political organizations were like getting people to go do these marches because I forget even the details of what we were against. You were in opposition to the new world order, which is interesting because there is, I've been really interested in conspiracy theories and history of conspiracy theories, so I don't have to get into this too much. But it is fascinating how both the right and the left seem to agree that there is a new world order and an effort to create, because that's around this time of discussion of NAFTA, which came up more recently with the... uh, Pacific partnership and just sort of debates about global trade in general that like there is kind of a right and left agreement that like NAFTA is bad and the new world order is bad and we both know what the new world order is. I remember like my interpretation of the WTO protest seemed to be that like Rage Guts Machine seemed to be into it. So I was like, it can't be that bad. Tom Morello wouldn't lie to me. But yeah, it, it very much I remember this being about that. No, okay, I right. I have serious pointing. I'm I'm going to park this and and hand it to you to you, Meredith, because okay, so so okay, so there were a lot of people from uh, fairly mainstream liberal groups, is is what I'm saying, opposing this, and and it was I guess it was technically about implementation of the Uruguay Round of the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, which is to say it was about some specific changes that were being made that groups felt would undermine environmental protections and labor protections, and there was a march, and we were just 
sort of supposed to march. Uh, but then there were uh, this other group of people who at the time we called Black Bloc. I think today you might call them Antifa. Uh, but they there were two things about them that distinguished them from the bulk of the crowd. One was that they would famously in Seattle, they were smashing the windows of Starbucks's. I was in Boston, so we have Dunkin' Donuts. It's t- totally different. But the other thing is that they were I mean, this was a tactical difference, but also if you ask them, why do you think smashing the windows of this Starbucks will help persuade Congress to delay implementation of the Uruguay round of the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, they would say, like, fuck you, we're protesting capitalism. Right. right. Like they came to the protest because they thought the existence of a large protest was an exciting moment to like get in the streets, get people participate. But they were trying to move the conversation to a different subject. And these people were, I mean, this was politicized. Like they were not smashing Starbucks windows because they wanted free coffee. I don't think it was like a sound political tactic, but like it really was one. Like they were trying to do something. And in particular, like they, they were trying to elevate this discussion out of the like technical intricacies of trade negotiations into like capitalism. So I was 14 when in 1999 when this was happening. And I feel like this sort of played into the like, what became for me like a depoliticization of millennials almost that like protest at that time was often seen as like, I don't know, yeah, white kids smashing Starbucks windows for something as big to purchase something as big as capitalism and as unwieldy and that it was a little bit meaningless, a little bit fatuous, a little bit like Ted Cruz had a tweet yesterday, I think that was like, when Ashley from like, you know, Evergreen College realizes like how serious the looting will be. You know, it's that right. sort of well. His also his argument was that you should use the RICO statute to go <laughs> after people, which I'm like, we need to. I hate Ted Cruz's Twitter feed <laughs> so much. There's a lot going on there, basically. Right. But that that idea that it's you know this like it's a a girl who's in over her head, like a little white girl with a fancy spelled Ashley name, and uh, I think a lot of that at least for me and my conception of protest and my conception of like how one would want to fight against a system or if a system is able to be fought against did come sort of from the WTO protest in the way that I think they were a little bit of, they ended up being a little bit laughed at at the time and like in the pop- popular culture. So I think that there are a couple things that I want to get to, but first off, I want to get up because one of the things about the WTO protests that I remember, and even with um, Occupy Wall Street or some of the other protest movements of the last, um, 20 or so years, is an understanding um, from observers that not necessarily that like, okay, looting, morally questionable, which I think is that I feel that is pretty true, but the author of this book seemed to think it was not true. But I think that for our purposes, we should get into whether or not it is effectual. And the understanding that, as Matt said, the idea of like, okay, we're going to smash these windows to fight capitalism. We are not smashing windows to postpone the inaction of the specific trade policy. We are not smashing windows to, especially because I think in this particular moment where you see looting taking place, the understanding that I have and that I feel pretty confident about is that the effort to uh, foment large-scale police reform say, eliminating qualified immunity, I do not think that that would be moved forward by smashing the windows of banks and or businesses. But the people who are doing that, like 
Antifa, or and many times it's people with no political purpose whatsoever. It's people who are like, the, you know, we see kind of the black bloc activists in Portland and elsewhere, but then also you see people where, I'm, where you're just like, oh, it just looked like it was fucking fun to throw a brick through a window. But I think that the political effectiveness of that is, I think, a marker that, that for instance, in the book, there's a criticism of nonviolence and of nonviolent action as being ineffectual and arguing that actually looting is what got civil rights work done, which is a very interesting interpretation of the Watts riots of 1965. But also that that looting represents the accurate response to what some would view as the wholesale, wholesale corruption of the entire system. That if you want nonviolent protests, you can like change the diversity standings of police and you can eliminate qualified immunity and reform the use of chokeholds. But if you're like, actually, the entire system is bad, then that is the response. And I, I don't really know what to do with that. <laughs> I think that these are the questions that I think I'm interested in personally. Cause like, so I was like, I was saying to Matt, like I, so I am an editor for the goods. I see almost everything through the lens of consumerism. It has totally broken my brain. Uh, when I like observed the um, initial round of looting in Minneapolis at the target, my first thought was like, Oh, are, are we protesting capitalism? Like, is it happening? Is the thing I've sort of been waiting for happening now, which I was wrong. That is not what we were doing. Nope. But it, uh, it, it did bring up these questions for me of just like, how does one protest capitalism effectively? Like, is there such a way, is there a way to, to effectively protest something as big as a system, something as like, something as large as this kind of exploitation and oppression? And the ways that capitalism is able to subsume that uh, protest has been fascinating to me personally, and especially in the last like 15 years as we've watched, um, I don't know, as we've bought into the idea that you can vote with your dollars, I think, which is something that I like to talk about all the time, that we sort of, you think you can buy your way to, you can buy your way out of an exploitative system, which... Yeah, and, and that's why I, I want to put a pin in a couple of the points yeah. Jane raised about, like, real political motives and, and stuff, and, you know, because it's it's worth thinking about what's on the, the, the other side of that, right? Like, there was this very striking sort of one-day work stoppage at the NBA um, mm -hmm. after, after, after James Lloyd. And, you know, clearly this is an issue that the players feel strongly about. Uh, LeBron James has been engaged in a lot of political topics, uh, but like this is something that, you know, police violence is something that impacts young black men very directly, forcefully, even if they become wealthy athletes. Yeah, so, there, there have been numerous examples on the Milwaukee Bucks of like players being stopped and harassed and in injured by police because it turns out police don't, you know, they might recognize you, but they don't particularly care. Right. But so so you have a lot of, you know, engagement on this topic and part of the terms of like restarting the NBA in the bubble where like they have like Black Lives Matter is like written on the floor there um, and they have these sort of like social justice slogans on their jerseys. You know, so the league is like trying to get players to, to buy in uh, at the same time, like. Many of the league's owners are like large donors to Donald Trump and to congressional Republicans who were blocking some of the kinds of legislative changes that Jane was talking about. Uh, they did this this work stoppage. And then Barack Obama, um, who is obviously like a like a pr a pro system figure right while also someone who cares about issues but like is definitely not trying to like 
burn the country to the ground. He helped broker like a ceasefire that involved uh, the the players went back to playing and a bunch of arenas now are going to be used as voting sites, which is a sort of important thing. But the whole premise there, like Obama's whole premise is that like engaging with electoralism is what you should be doing with your time. The NBA is just like trying to make money, right? Like they're they're trying to appease the players. They're dealing with the fact that they have a more liberal fan base than other sports leagues. And they want everyone to believe that participating in this commercial activity is like a way of advancing social justice. And like, I don't think that that holds up really. Like I, 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 I love basketball and I also think people should vote in November, but the connection between those things and the topics that are ostensibly being addressed seems actually like really thin to me. And some other companies, it's like, it's even worse. Yeah. I mean, I think the question of like, what is effectual also depends on like what you're trying to affect, which I th- people are trying to affect different types of, uh, different types of change and different types of I don't know, systems being questioned. Ultimately, a lot of these things I think feel really status quo reaffirming. Like the NBA, like, you know, buying a t-shirt that uh, has an anti-capitalist slogan on it or whatever, the most ironic thing a person can do that I love to think about. But yeah, it's like, what what is the effect you mean to have? And I think there's not necessarily as much agreement about that. The idea that, that anything, that looting or any protest action is inherently anything, I think is sort of divorced from like, who's doing it, how it's happening. Like it, it, everything is so specific and nuanced, but looting is interesting as a topic where people are very eager to point out that they know that it's bad, that stealing is bad. Yeah. Like, yeah, stealing is, stealing is bad. Kind of. We're also a, a country that like started with the tea party. So like clearly we have maybe slightly more complicated feelings about looting than we uh, profess. Is stealing bad? I, mean, I think stealing's medium. <laughs> See, that's that's the thing, right? Because, right, because like there is one view. This is not my view, but like, you know, there's a view that like the existence of private property is is the real violence, right? Yeah. No, I I think we sort of have a diseased relationship to property in general uh, as a as a country. Like before any of this, our like relationship consumerism has like what it's done to the environment, what it's done to human rights, what it's done to like labor across the world. Like there's some real uh things to be concerned about with property. (laughs) I I would also say, right, so it's like peaceful protest is a word that I really don't uh, like because all kinds of protests that we look back on, you know, favorably, right, were disorderly. So like a sit-in at a lunch counter, it's not violent, right? Like, Like we get the phrase, like, nonviolence from Martin Luther King and and SNCC, you know, who were organizing those sit-ins. But but the interpretation of those sit-ins and protests at the time was that these were deep. Like there's a famous editorial cartoon of Martin Luther King being interviewed. We're saying like, oh, we're going to have another nonviolent protest. And it's very Ben Garrison style and that everything behind him is labeled. Um, (laughs) It's just like burning city and complete chaos or something like that. Because I think that the challenge with protests is that protests inherently disrupt order as you interpret it. So if you're blocking a street, if you're sitting in the middle of a road, if you're doing something that is not whatever was supposed to be taking place, there is a view, and it's interesting to see how this is interpreted uh, by some people on the right who also value the use of protests, uh, particularly that was aimed at the government. But this idea that essentially, okay, you know, peaceful protests as interpreted by us, are good. 
But that at a certain point, you get to the point where it's like, no, 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 no. There's basically no form of acceptable process, as we've learned in discussions about the NBA and the NFL, where it's like, well, kneeling's not good and walkouts aren't good and attempting to get arenas to be used as voting locations is bad. But there basically is nothing that you could do that would be a sign of like an acceptable sign of protest to some people. But I think that one of the challenges I have, and I want to talk a little bit more specifically about what's been happening more recently, the looting instances in Kenosha and elsewhere. I am not as old as Matt, but when I was in eighth grade, um, it was April 2001, uh, and I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio, as did- Wait, you were uh, in eighth grade in 2001? Yes. Yeah, even I'm older than you. Come on. (laughs) Yes. This is terrible. I'm not podcasting with you anymore. (laughs) It was a, actually, it wasn't a halcyon time at all. I just remember, like, it was just, I was very anxious all the time. But anyway, so a unarmed uh, black man named Timothy Thomas was shot by police in Cincinnati. And thus began two weeks of protests and also riots. Like, there was an example of, like, a white truck driver getting dragged out of his truck and all this happening and all these protests and stuff like that. And I, I want to separate that protests and the riots were two separate things, but being in eighth grade, it just all seemed disorderly to me because I valued order also as I was in eighth grade. But I remember thinking back and you saw, um, you know, I know that this gets into the, uh, the kind of discussion about capitalism, the critique of capitalism, but one of the challenges that was then created was that there was this longstanding move one, an overall boycott of downtown Cincinnati businesses in response to police violence, but also a shifting away of resources and, I would argue, care from downtown Cincinnati, kind of based on the argument that the people down there don't care about their community, that it's not worth it, that that, that downtown Cincinnati was lost in some way. And so I really am concerned about the long-term ramifications of rioting and of looting because of how it impacts not just the communities there now, but the communities there to come. And so in that idea, I remember feeling a deep sense of overwhelming embarrassment that the first time that I saw my city on national television in a way that did not have to deal with our bad sports teams was for this. And I remember watching... um, ABC News with Peter Jennings, and they had like a drive through through downtown Cincinnati that made it look like to Crete or something like that. And this idea of like downtown Cincinnati is an area you need to stay away from. And moreover, you need to stay away from the people there. They need to pull resources out of downtown Cincinnati because those people, they looted their own spaces, they looted their own homes, their own stores. They can't be trusted. There shouldn't be expanded bus access to downtown Cincinnati. There shouldn't be expanded anything in downtown Cincinnati. And this is something that impacted the downtown of Cincinnati for pretty much my entire experience being in high school. Um, I graduated in 2005 and only in, I'd say, the last 15 years has that idea of what downtown was and even what downtown constituted has changed. And so I think that one of the challenges here, and we've seen um, in some of the polling that when you talk to black voters um, and, you know, about, uh, say, police violence, their idea is essentially that we are simultaneously under-policed and over-policed, but also that the idea of what this means to the cities where this is taking place, what it means to Kenosha, what it means to Milwaukee, what it means to downtowns, is not that it is... At this one hand, it is a representation of long-standing violence, of long-standing in Cincinnati. It was long-standing bad acts by the Cincinnati Police Department. 
that have since resulted in some reforms, but arguably not enough. But also that that then fomented a real downturn in the fate of downtown Cincinnati that did not benefit the people there who had already endured so much. And so I think the challenge here is that, again, the people who are doing the looting might be disconnected from the politics of it, but also the people making the politics of looting, putting that first and foremost, are divorced from the people who must endure later. And I keep referring back to this NPR interview because um, I think it was the, the, a touchstone for a lot of commentary on the old internet. But her argument essentially is like, well, spalt small business owners are bad. And then she argued to Isaac Schottner that small business owners were the equivalent of slaveholders, which was weird. Small, small slaveholders. Small slave owners, to be clear. But also the fact that that is not an argument that people who live in any of these communities are making. And I think that that is something that really gets me about this, is that whether or not it is representative of a politically effectual or ineffectual movement, the people who are most affected by it are the people who will see you know, who will see resources lost because of the perception of what their community is or what their community does. Okay, let's let's take a break and then I think Meredith has something she wants to say. Yes. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for the weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. So I, I'll say I have like also seen my city on the news in the post-rioting, post-looting. And it's because I grew up in Massachusetts and Boston has done that for like the Patriots winning the Super Bowl. I think a lot of this is like narratives about like the narratives that we cast looting in and the problem of like where we 
put personal responsibility after something like this. After looting, we're like, the looters should have known that this was like a bad narrative that they're helping to create that will then disenfranchise them. But like, ultimately, I mean, looting is a complicated expression of a lot of things. And the problems are being made clear. And the people who could fix those problems are still not like quite taking responsibility for them. The conversation that we're having about looting instead of the conversation that we're having about the problems that create looting is frustrating. I just think we're having the wrong conversation sort of when we have a conversation about looting. We keep having a conversation about personal responsibility generally. So I was thinking, right, I always like to talk about visuals uh, on a podcast because it's it's perfection, right? But you could probably think of like like a two by two schema of like protests sort of concepts and, and how they relate. And like on one axis, you're talking about increasingly confrontational, disruptive moves, right? So what I think we didn't have in the civil rights era that's become very common today is like you go to the park department, you get a permit, and then you're having your demonstration like with your permit. And there's like 12 guys with a sign, right? Or like it's a it's a scheduled march. And and there's like very little disruptiveness. It's quote unquote peaceful protest. And I think there's some studies actually of uh they look at like rain as an instrument and Tea Party protests in the 2010 midterms. Um and those kind of minimally disruptive protests do work actually because they they get you on the local news and you can talk about you know what it is what it is you want to do but then you can kind of go up the ladder right to where you are you're blocking traffic uh you're doing a sit-in at a business right you you're breaking the laws um up to okay you are actually breaking things right you're not doing you're not occupying a space you are damaging it or you are taking things, you're stealing, you know, up to and including there have been politically motivated assassinations, right? And so that's like a long one. And somewhere in between is probably like you set the police car on fire um, or you set the police precinct on fire. Then another axis is like targeting. When you do a sit-in at a segregated lunch counter, the point is that that specific lunch counter is segregated and you are protesting segregation, right? You're not just doing like some shit. You're like actually targeting. And even when you do something that I think most people would find extreme, like setting a police car on fire, if you're protesting the police, there's at least a clear direct relationship between like police cars and the police department or vandalizing Confederate statues, right, is like a way of protesting those statues. And of course, like the larger ideas behind them, but it's like it's directly targeted. Part of what is troubling to normal people about sort of vandalism and property destruction in the course of protests is that it's both extreme and fairly untargeted. It's not obvious that the shops in Chicago's Miracle Mile like have anything to do with the structural inequities of the Chicago Police Department. But also, possibly they do, right? Like, that's the, I, I think that's the like under theorized element here, exactly. Where, like, I mean, you, if, yeah, if that's a place where you're getting arrested a lot, where people are um, particularly targeted for like, you know, shopping while black, which is certainly like a, a phenomenon that we've seen in our department stores, then like, I think there is something. Or if you're talking about a like a big box store that comes into a neighborhood and uh, displaces mom and pop shops and gives people poor wages and exploits them and takes money and funnels it out of the community, which so many of these businesses are, like 
I'm not saying that's exactly what's happening. I'm saying it's a it's an interesting locus for the protest. Well, and I think it's telling that, you know, when people are like they're like trying to make Vicky Osterweil look bad, they'll like ask her about small businesses because that's supposedly like the tough question to answer. But it's like you can bracket that, right? Like there is damage done. Like in in my neighborhood, one of the shops that got smashed up back in April was the CVS. And say what you will about CVS, uh, it's like the opposite of mom and pop. There used to be mom and pop drugstores, and now there's not. Like only in North, in North Dakota, chain drugstores are illegal. Uh, and so mom and pop still have the pharmacy. But in the rest of the world, you got Walgreens and you got CVS, right? And like even... Even even Dwayne Reed has been been sucked up into the into the maw of of chains. And then the question is, is like, well, is that good? Right. Is that like a form of political resistance or is it just like dumbassery nonetheless? Because like CBS is a very unsympathetic target. Right. If I went up and I was like trying to make people feel bad for like the shareholders of this impersonal retail corporation whose like customer service is terrible and all kinds of things like that, like it'd be tough. And all these things like, well, they got insurance, you know, blah, 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 blah. At the same time, it's like, you know, having lived in D.C. for a long time, it's like precisely in the most tenuous neighborhoods that like CVS will be like the one store. Right. It's like when that opens up, you're at least like somewhere on the map, like somebody is willing to put a financial investment in your community. And now there's a place you can buy Cheerios. And like, do you want to drive that up? Do you want to send the message to multinational corporations that like this community doesn't want you here? Or is the the bounty of global capitalism, you know, something we, we should be thankful for? Yeah, I think that it's also worth noting that like, again, the tenuous explanation <laughs> argument. used to edit like a, like a, were you like a college libertarian or something? I was not a college libertarian. I was editor in chief of a libertarian conservative newspaper. Those are two different things, to be clear. But I think that it's worth noting here that even the explanations we're give, like, if you asked people who were in the process of smashing up a CBS, are you doing this because of X reason? I feel like the explanation you would get is like, not really. It just is like, it's a thing that we are taking part in. Because I think that one of the challenges here is that I keep thinking about like, if we are trying to foment an action, I know that we've gotten into this discussion a little bit earlier. And I know that this is the, the idea of like a protest needing to have a cause or a desired effect is questionable. But also like, if you are attempting to get a thing done, if you are say, if you are protesting big box stores moving into small and middle income neighborhoods, Smashing up those businesses does not then result in the influx of small businesses. I'm aware that there's like a lot of discussion about what this means, but I feel like there's a discussion about what this means and then there's what actually is happening. And I think that one of the challenges here, just to get a little bit in, kind of wider in scope, is that the perception of what this looks like gets itself into a bifurcated perspective. And I'll give you an example. There's been a lot of writing about how New York is a den of evil, and it's basically, um, it's descended into madness and chaos. And a lot of this came up in someone who posted this long post on LinkedIn. And then Jerry Seinfeld responded in the New York Times, but then people were like, Jerry Seinfeld, you live in the Hamptons. How do you know? And then, but like this idea that you get of people who are talking about like Washington DC is on fire. And then Matt and I can look outside of our windows and be like, DC is not on fire. And you have journalists who are like, 
biking around the Capitol or like walking through 14th Street and are like, yeah, everything here seems fine. So you get this kind of bifurcated response, which is that either the rioting symbolizes the downfall of American cities and everyone should white flight 4.0, or actually all of that is wrong and everything is totally fine and we're all having wine in the grass. And neither of those is true, but neither of them is 100% false either. And I think that that gets into the work that we do, how these events are perceived and the idea of whether or not they play into a political narrative or play into a political anti-narrative, I think is also important. But I think then that occasionally that leads to the same kind of backfilling that you see the people who are like, either New York has fallen into Sodom and Gomorrah or New York is absolutely fine and nothing is wrong, where you have motivated reasoning on both sides. And I think that what we're seeing with the entire conversation about what looting means, or even if it means anything or has to, I think you see motivated reasoning there, where you see the postings about it on National Review are like, we got to send in the Marines because simultaneously these very weak but very strong Antifa agents who are paid for by God knows whom are burning down American cities. And then you read something else and you're like people living in American cities like I don't feel like we've been burned down. So I think that get it like that motivated reasoning, especially in an election year where everyone's reasoning is in, in, inherently motivated to a political purpose or the opposite political purpose. I think that that discussion is worth having. Sure is. Um, I guess I was like, that's where the discussion that I feel like we're having lets me down a lot of the time. I guess when you're seeing like Joe Biden or Jacob Frey or whoever it is come out and denounce looting, it feels like an easy sort of, it feels like we're not having the discussion we need to be having about why these things are happening in the same way. And, And two, it like is an easy way to point to like, hey, I still care about law and order and I still care about justice in these ways. And it feels like looting and rioting, number one, are always linked together, which is not necessarily true and interesting to me. And, and two, that like, yeah, the conversation that we end up having about it uh, and the, the motivated conversation that we end up having about it, like the motivations are different all over the map and no ones are great because people are terrible. I, I do hope that New York, uh, you know, sort of goes down the toilet so the rent will uh, drop and I can finally afford to like buy an apartment here. But, uh, you know, I, I don't know. It would be funny to imagine, you know, rioting organized by real estate speculators. Just like turn it on, turn it off, scoop up, scoop up some some properties at a bargain in Brooklyn. Uh, but I think there's a connection to policing issues, you know, both in terms of like what is protested against, but also how some of these things are handled. Like there was one or two evenings in in New York back back in the day when it it looked to me, I mean, I was not in New York, but I, I was just following things that were going on. And I, and I know people who work in city government. And it appeared that the NYPD had decided to put its resources into policing the protests, right? And kettling people and stuff like that, trying to disperse protesters while leaving the Midtown shopping district un policed so that they could then say the next day, see, see what you got here. And that's because there's, you know, people will say, oh, look how they're treating this group, that group. But like, there's just an obvious difference between there's a police presence at 
any kind of protest. But if you're demonstrating against the Uruguay round of the World Trade Organization, like maybe the cops don't care. And if you're demonstrating against, if you're demonstrating for a conservative political cause, the police may agree with you. And if you're demonstrating against the police department, then like, of course, the police department don't want your protest to be successful. And that's not like, oh, fuck the cops. Like, it's common sense. It's like, no, if somebody did a protest against Vox, I wouldn't be like, well, I really want this to go well. Right? <laughs> like, like, that's, you know, if, if, you know, maybe the police officers are right, maybe they're wrong. But like, by definition, they don't want to see major reforms to how these things work. So it's in their interest to do what they can to essentially sabotage things. And, right. you know, Ezra and I were talking in the last show about just like de-policing in general as, as a response to these movements. And it varies from place to place, right? So like in Portland, we've seen a kind of like entrenched combat between uh, radical protesters and a police department. You saw, you know, in Minneapolis after George Floyd died or in Kenosha after Jacob Blake was shot, what seemed like fairly spontaneous sort of community uh movements. Uh, but then you you saw in New York and I and I think you also saw in DC, you know, big organized protest movements that police departments reacted to in a way that suggested, you know, they didn't they didn't quote unquote want to see looting take place, but they were like kind of glad. You know, it was it was making a point for them. And and you know, I mean, I saw this in my neighborhood, so it's like why were there dozens and dozens of cops one evening surrounding protesters on Swan Street, like swarming them? Right. While meanwhile, like three blocks away, just like some guy with a can of graffiti was like running around tagging stuff everywhere. Right. And it's like that's a that's a decision about how to use law enforcement resources, just like President Trump. You know, when he puts his people to like go on television and be like, we think all this rioting is really good for us. Like that raises questions about your management of the situation as a, as a government official. And like, I don't know, I don't, I don't want to see uh, the stories in my neighborhood get smashed up. But like, I also don't want to see the people using like order as a concept actually welcoming the disorder because it's an excuse not to make any kind of changes. Right. Especially because I think it's just to get into this a little bit that we've seen from uh, police unions and um, less than benevolent benevolence associations of police that in many major cities where this is taking place, there very much is an idea that if the police essentially let some of this go the understanding is like you know it's it's like a mob shakedown of like nice city you have shame if something happened to it and so the police here are actors and they are not act like we occasionally think of their actions or the actions of law enforcement though i hopefully lessens this less now as being kind of uh, neutral arbiters in these examples but we've seen numerous times in portland and elsewhere where the police will tell um, right-wing groups, like, you can go on ahead or this is what's going to happen here and essentially focus their attention on left-wing groups. And I think that that is a, a separate issue because especially when you have an understanding from the White House that if Kellyanne Conway is saying that the worse things get, the better it is for us, I think that that raises the element here of how they're either each party in this conversation <laughs> seems 
at best, deeply flawed. Yeah. I, I think we're, when we're talking about a system that doesn't work for people and has not worked for people for hundreds of years and that continues to like, as a machine, actively just like crunch people up and uh, ruin their lives, you know, and oppression and exploitation and all of this. And then we ask sort of like, well, who's driving these narratives? I think especially when you see like the, the weeks that the police in New York City were kettling protesters on the Brooklyn Bridge and letting, uh, you know, the bright and shiny windows of Fifth Avenue get smashed up were some of the scariest because it felt, uh, or for me at least, as like, you know, a, a white idiot, like living in Brooklyn, like I finally understanding the ways that police would act against, uh, against the populace became incredibly clear. So it was like an interesting narrative from that perspective too, where I had never really seen this personally in the way that I, I saw it in those weeks. So like, how does any of this narrative work? Who's it working on? Like, what story is it telling? I think there's like a little more nuance there than sometimes we understand. All right, let's take another break and I want to return to this. So, I mean, I do think that like the theme of capitalism, you know, is is a sort of important one here. Not just because it's the interest of, of Meredith's, but when you see... It's not a coincidence, right, that some of the locus, a lot of the locus of radicalism uh, on this topic in the streets has been in the Pacific Northwest, where, you know, if you look at a map of the United States, Portland and Seattle, and especially Portland, is not like ground zero for where Black people live among American cities. Interestingly, that that happened on purpose because Oregon's constitution forbade Black people from living in the state. Yes, I mean, I yes, but I mean, but also these are cities that are known for like left wing politics, right. like in in general, right? And I, I mean, because you you can do this in a like ha ha kind of way. This is a bunch of white people, uh, but like also like it is right. Like there are many politically moderate African-Americans who are upset at the way the police treat Black people and would like to see changes made to that. Not unrelatedly, but like fairly separately. There are also political radicals who see any time people are getting out in the streets and protesting as like an opportunity to like do radical politics. And and I feel like, you know, for better or worse, like that's pretty clearly what's happening in Portland. This is not a super tightly linked to African-American community specific concerns about policing, right? Like these are people with far left political but it's like it's it's both not surprising that Joe Biden would denounce them and it's also like cheap talk because like these are people whose political agenda has nothing to do with Joe Biden yeah i th- i think that that gets at um the politicization of this of it in an inherently political act and this in with taking part with political actors means that there's definitely an understanding that in some way that like Joe Biden has to take responsibility for this taking place, despite the fact that Joe Biden has about as much to do with black black Antifa as Antifa has to do with Joe Biden. It is interesting to me, though, that the people, again, who have the opportunity to think about capitalism as a system and think about a world without capitalism, which keep in mind is a system. It's interesting to me because I think that there's like the capitalism that we see uh, as like a large scale entity. And then there's kind of small scale capitalism, which is the 
interactions and the financial interactions that we have with individuals all the time. But the people who are able, who are thinking about this and who are thinking deeply about this and even making arguments against it are often not the people for whom capitalism is harshest. Because when you are washing dishes or working at Target, you may not have time to be contemplating whether or not capitalism is or isn't working for you. You are thinking about how best to work within capitalism. And I think that in some ways, that's why the explanations I've heard for this kind of bothered me because at the same time, like the people who are hurt most within a capitalist system, one, I remain unclear as to like what these alternatives would look like that would in some way benefit them more so than it would somehow benefit the people who are always better off in any system. Like the nomenclatura wind up okay, no matter what happens. I think that it's worth noting that there's a big class element here, which is why I think Ted Cruz's tweets are so stupid, because it's the assumption that people who are involved in black block action are all secretly rich and have secretly have parents who would pay for lawyers to help them with something, which I, I've known just enough anarchist teens to know that uh, parental involvement stopped being a thing for a lot of them real early, which is why they found the community they did. But I think also the idea of how to engage with these systems that surround us and pervade when you are attempting to do so on behalf of other people for whom these systems are extremely harsh, how to think about how to do that that benefits the other people perhaps more than it benefits yourself. And even if it doesn't look the way that you would want it to, I think that that's an important point to raise. No, yeah, I think that's an incredibly important point to raise. It's also just like, it's incredibly complicated. It's like, what actions are being asked for here? Like, is it, you know, is it a higher minimum wage? Is it like a system of consumerism that doesn't create as much waste in the environment? Like, that's not really something that I guess is concerning to people on the ground. It concerns me. It's fine. Um, but, you know, I mean, like, what are the, or is it like human rights abuses uh, in like factories abroad or, or in factories here, which like we still see? Is it, what is being asked of capitalism in or like in protest against capitalism. And I think like for the most part, yeah, it's hard for people to protest their own circumstances. It's hard for people who are uh, be just trying to get by in a system to protest that system. I mean, I think it's, it's complicated if somebody has the vantage point from which to examine a system and see problems in it, how do they then petition for those problems to be solved or uh, lessened or what that looks like? Eternally complicated. But it feels like somehow we end up with like, we end up with corporations that have almost no responsibility for their actions and people that have a lot of responsibility for theirs. And that like divide is, uh, I'm not sure how you bridge it, but I think it probably involves some protest and I don't know what that protest looks like. Well, and you know, uh, something that you see right in contemporary politics is I think a accurate sense on a lot of people's part that the prospects of large-scale political change are really, really low, and that they're low even if you, you know, sort of, quote-unquote, do the right thing and register and go vote and, and things like that, and that the experience of you know, 2009, 2010, where there was a lot of excitement about Obama and hope and change. And it's not that nothing happened as a result of those congressional majorities, but much less happened than, I mean, it's not just like there wasn't a radical revision of capitalism. It's like much less happened than was in the Obama electoral platform, 
right? And and like and I could tell you why that is, right? And it, you know, filibuster, it, you know, th- there's a whole set of explanations, but we have a political system in which it's extremely difficult for even an activated, engaged electoral majority to translate its desire for change into outcomes, right? So to people who want, you know, even bigger change than that, instead of saying, okay, this is working. Okay, I need to, I need to like talk to 10 more people and change their minds. And then my more far-reaching idea might also be popular. Right. And then we would also do that, right? Because that's like my model of constructive change, right? Right. You gotta move the window of acceptability. Right. What would be that like popular things would happen. Right. And unpopular but perhaps morally urgent ideas, you would make the case for them and then like try to convince people. And that would be nice as a like as a writer, I've like really want to believe in convincing people of stuff. Um, But we're not, you know, political system is not functioning like that. And it's increasingly taken for granted in elite circles that the idea that it should work like that is laughable, right? Like if I were to say to Republicans, well, it's bad that the Senate just has a large skew to conservative rural white people, and we should change that. They wouldn't like have a discussion with me like that. Like the idea that you would make a change for the sake of fairness is like, it's like totally out of bounds, right? And you see it in like the increasing, um, the the shamelessness with which gerrymandering takes place. People even brag, right? Like how like how good their their stratagems are. And, you know, Democrats will like do their thing and like try to win the election. And if you're mad about anything, tell you to go vote for them. But they don't have a credible theory of like how like Biden winning in November is going to create these outcomes, right? So like Jane likes to talk about qualified immunity. I do. Um, Trump is against changing qualified immunity. Biden is for it. Senate Republicans are against it. Senate Democrats are for it. So if Biden wins and Democrats win four Senate races, are they going to change qualified immunity? The answer is no. Like they're not going to. So that's tough, right? I mean, if you're trying to sell people on the idea that like, look, there are moderate you know, I, I don't want to say moderate. Like it's a it's a big deal, but like reformist reforms that like will address these issues, and you should participate in the political process. But like the answer is no. Like you're you're not even going to achieve those things. So it does seem natural to me that people want to look outside electoral politics for ideas. I don't. I don't I, I don't agree with the idea of setting things on fire in Portland because I, I don't I, I don't think you could quite explain to me like how that makes change happen. But I do think that people have an obligation. People like me have an obligation to do more than like tut tut about these tactics because the what's on offer from like Barack Obama uh, you know, we'll have these voting centers. Like, that's not going to work. Like, it's definitely not going to work. I could give you, like, as a sympathetic account of, like, no, Barack Obama didn't just betray all your hopes and dreams as president. He faced the institutional constraints of the American political and legal system. But so, like, that's going to just happen again. Like, you have to do something else. Yeah. I think that's a lot about the argument of dragging the Overton window to where we're having a different discussion. All right. Uh, <laughs> So let's say that, you know, I, I feel remiss. I, I didn't even mention once 
that people should buy my book. Yeah. But it's on sale. You cannot loot my book uh, yet because uh, it's not in stores for eight days. And also, I think that if you loot um, a local independent bookstore, you will find actually a strong backlash from left-wing intellectuals who otherwise might make excuses for you. Uh, so don't do that. Buy my book with with money. Um, but you can support a local bookstore while doing it. Uh, if you go to IndieBound, for example, or Bookshop, uh, these are great websites for ordering from your local independent bookstore. Or maybe it's back open again, depending on pandemic circumstances. Is very important stuff. Um, so thank you so much, Meredith, for joining us. Uh, I know this is not your your normal thing, uh, but it's a great discussion. It's, uh, you know, something I, I think we need to address. Um, thanks as always to our sponsors, our producer, Jeffrey Geld, and the Weeds will be back on Friday. <laughs>